0: Hi, I'm Adam Cooper, bringing you season five of The Mediator Studio. If you enjoy this podcast, then check out Hold Your Fire with Richard Atwood at International Crisis Group for a deep dive into conflicts and crises around the world.
1: I don't even know where I got that kind of courage at that time. A lot of the things we did back then, I don't know if I would do them now as a mom with children and so on. But really, at that time, we all felt that if the price for the struggle is today, you know, so be it.
0: Welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper, and I'm coming to you from a very special edition of the Oslo Forum. Having started out as a small gathering in 2003, the Forum is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Participants from around the world have come to discuss how to resolve the major conflicts of our day. Yemen, Sudan, Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine. My guest today was a member of the high-level African Union panel that facilitated the Ethiopian peace talks in South Africa. She's also served as South Africa's first female deputy president and was the executive director of UN Women for eight years. Dr. Phumzile Mlabo Mukha, welcome to the Mediator's studio.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I want to give our listeners an idea of the early experiences that later led to your mediation roles. You were born in apartheid South Africa and 1976 was the year of the student uprising, a year that really changed your life. Tell me what you were like back then. Talk me through that transition.
1: I was a student when the 1976 uprising happened Our university closed like many other universities in South Africa did. And that led to me leaving South Africa, ended up studying in Lesotho. And that's where things became really changed. We were a lot of students and all of us were running away from something. Mm. And we met in Lesotho where there were also already a lot of students not just from South Africa, there were also students from Namibia, there were students from Zimbabwe, there were students from Mozambique, mm. so it became a kind of a, a place with Southern African students mm. who were seeking change in their countries.
0: Was there a rebellious spirit in the air?
1: You would say so, yeah, you would say so. And
0: for yourself too, what, what were you like as an individual back then once you arrived in Lesotho.
1: Well, I was in the background most of the time. I was not uh, someone who was upfront, but I was clear that whenever there was action to be taken, I will be there.
0: And in South Africa, you and your friends were arrested multiple times, for example, going to whites-only beaches. What did your family think about your activism?
1: I think by that time parents in South Africa had accepted that uh, the young people are more likely to bring change more than them as older people could. So they did not try to stop us. They did not try to encourage us as well. So they just uh, stood back and expected it to happen.
0: And your husband, then your fiancé, was in prison for five years for refusing to testify in court against a colleague and that had a major impact on your wedding, a day which should have been one of the happiest days of one's life.
1: What happened? Well, he was uh, arrested, and on the week that uh, he was going to be released was also the week we were supposed to get married. But that was also the week where they killed Griffith Simkwange, who was a human rights lawyer and had been his principal lawyer. He worked in his law firm so uh, coming out of prison looking forward to meet uh, the people and the first thing um, that happened was not only that Mr Mkwenge had died then they killed Mrs Mkwenge so that became much more difficult for all of us so we had to be thinking about arranging a, a wedding which we had to tone down quite a bit and just go through the process and then focus on arranging for the funeral. And it it was a very difficult time. And for you at that
0: time, fighting against that system, I understood that you wore a T-shirt which was written victory or death. Were you really willing to die for the struggle at the time?
1: I would say yes, but I don't even know where I got that kind of courage at that time. A lot of the things we did back then, I don't know if I would do them now as a mum with children and so on. But really, at that time, we all felt that if the price for the struggle is to die, you know, so be it. And even as you see, children would uh, go and fight with the police carrying stones and the police carrying guns. That was what it was at that time.
0: And those experiences living in apartheid South Africa, did they teach you anything about mediation or dialogue that would be useful to you later?
1: Throughout that time, the voices of the much older people in the struggle always want us to always be open for any opportunity for sensible talk. Mm. So there was always that at the back of our minds that should there ever be an opportunity for serious talks to happen, we should bring ourselves to the table with the seriousness it would deserve.
0: Was Nelson Mandela one of those older people that you were referring yes, to, who abso- you knew at the absolutely, time?
1: Absolutely, yes. Uh, Mama Sisulu was one. Of course, Oliver Tambo was the big voice of reason. Yeah.
0: I'd like to fast forward to your involvement with the Ethiopia-Tigray conflict, and just to lay out the background for our listeners. After decades of simmering tensions between the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, and the government of Ethiopia, fighting broke out in November 2020 with a series of offensives and counter-offensives. In November 2022, after two years of violent conflict and following peace talks in South Africa, a peace agreement was signed. The conflict's legacy, however, is brutal. Some estimates of war dead are as high as 800,000. You were part of the mediation team at talks in South Africa, part of a high-level African Union panel, along with Uhuru Kenyatta, the former president of Kenya, and the former president of Nigeria, Olusegun Obasanjo. When you got the call from the foreign affairs department asking you to get involved, what was your initial reaction?
1: Well, honestly, I didn't necessarily think that I had all the insights to get involved at that level and yet at the same time i was aware that with the challenges we have in africa and the importance of having women participate Mm. in this talk this is not something i will say no to it is important to be there to assist as much as i can as well as to push for the engagement of women
0: and When you began your work as part of the mediation team, what was happening on the ground at the time?
1: Well, people were dying in Tigray. It it really was horrible. As a result, when we started, the most important intervention for us was the cessation of hostilities and to silence the guns. That was on top of our heads.
0: And to achieve that goal, you were part of this three-person team tell us about the chemistry between you and your colleagues and the different approaches that you would take the two former presidents and yourself you know how was your first meeting with them
1: well it's people i met before so it was not very strange but obviously these are sort of larger than life personalities (laughs) with a lot of experience and insight in this field we all were worried that this might take long. So we started by really thinking about how we could make this quick given the the agency. And we wanted also to create an environment where the two parties could rediscover the friendships they used to have. Because you remember the people from Tigre used to work in Addis. They were part of government. So it was actually quite strange to see these now as, as enemies. And the first part was, yes, bringing them together to say, you are all Ethiopians, let's start there, so you can find a path together.
0: And how did you go about creating that environment to bring them back together?
1: It was both bilaterals with one group, and of course the anger was palpable, you could touch it. And in all of the discussions, you have to be patient and willing to listen because everybody starts with their list of complaints. Mm -hmm. And even though, as you try to say, we want to move from this and to get into that, no. They want to repeat everything, the way they felt it, what happened to them, the cruelty that has been unleashed on them. Allow that to happen and acknowledge it as well and then try then and talk about where do we go from here. Fortunately for these two groups, at the time when they came to the peace talks, they actually wanted the peace, which I think for us was the luck. The Tigrins had lost too many people and they were under pressure in the community to try and find a way of stopping the killing. Ethiopian government was bleeding economically, needed to find a way to have order so that they could move ahead with the economic interventions. And of course, they were losing France as well. So they wanted some normality to come back to Ethiopia.
0: You mentioned seeing these two conflict parties separately and bilateral mm-hmm. meetings first. I'm curious about your personal relationship with the parties and how you worked with them. On the government side, to say, uh, to start with, you know, many governments feel sensitive about mm. the role of external mediators. Mm. Was that the case here?
1: Oh, yes. Ethiopians don't like uh, people to meddle in their affairs. And even though they embraced us, even though they spoke a lot about African problems with African solution and they were looking forward to have us, but there was always an element of this is our thing and you can go this far and not that far so we always had to push so you actually had to be tough with them in some cases just as much as sometimes you had to stand back and allow them to vent mm. and for- which they did a lot
0: <laughs> <laughs> you sound like there's memories coming back to yeah. you as you as you reflect on it
1: there's also in each group trying to show that they were the better ones they were the victims not the perpetrators of violence but we were not really interested at that point to assign blame because we didn't think that would help anyone. We most definitely wanted to acknowledge the hurt that has happened from both sides and we wanted them to talk about how they move forward. Of course the big elephant in the room was the presence of the foreign fighters in Ethiopia which in particular from Eritrea. And that was something that was critical for the TPLF to be addressed extensively. And that was something that the government was not initially very open to. But we did reach a point where they all agreed that it would be better if the Eritreans left Ethiopia.
0: And how do you deal with such a sensitive issue like that?
1: Well, we just had to head on and say you know this is it you have to make sure that uh, your country is not in a perpetual conflict because someone from outside has come in and made you fight and after the end of the peace talks when i went to Tigray later tplf was telling me that actually the pulling out of some because not every one who is a foreign fighter has left tigre you still have uh, some eritreans that that are left there but the tplf was telling me that you know now when tplf is likely to cause problems in the community it is now the ethiopian forces who are telling us and, and warning us and making sure that we are protected so clearly the removal of this foreign force could go a long way to bringing these warring brothers mm. together.
0: I understand there were many times when the talks nearly collapsed. Can you give me an All example? The <laughs> All the time. All the time. Can you talk to me about one of those situations?
1: Well, you know, I don't know how many times we had to stop because one, especially from government, they wanted to go and caucus. And sometimes you think that this is a one hour stop, it will take half a day. And we were anxious because, you know, the stay they were going to have in South Africa was scheduled to end in a week's time. We went obviously beyond that. And there were issues that were particularly difficult. The issue of the withdrawal of the forces was, was one of them. The issue of demilitarization and the handing over of weapons was a particularly difficult issue. The issue of reinstallation of the infrastructure that was causing so many difficulties for civilian population. And on one hand, on the part of the Ethiopian government, they still thought that... TPLF may still want to attack them. So they don't want to give up on the foreign fighters and then be exposed. But on the other hand the TPLF was not willing to demilitarise, to hand over their weapons when these guys from Eritrea were still there. So that was a bit of a stalemate. But um, obviously they also had to be talking back to their headquarters and principals in between to get guidance and i think they were given a green light to say okay you can accept
0: were you the only woman in that negotiating room and how
1: was that there were other women who were in the surroundings of the talks but of course the three people that were in the front line yes it was the two men and myself
0: and did you feel that that brought certain advantages? as a mediator that you could use with the parties to try to break some of these deadlocks?
1: Honestly, I thought I was an irritation and I don't care because there was not enough focus on women, on the fact that women are not just victims. Yes, they are victims, they suffered a lot, but women are leaders Mm. as well. So their presence in the peace talks is to add value on the quality of the talks and the quality of the outcome. So I had to be reminding everybody that all the time. And the TPLF was sort of accepting, but it was much tougher for the government delegation to accept that there was a place for women in these talks and the absence of women could be a spoiler.
0: How would those conversations go with the government?
1: Most of the time, it was just dead silent, Uh, didn't get a lot uh, of response. And honestly, even now, it still is a challenge. I did manage to get women from Ethiopia organized before to get them to engage with government, but uh, I don't think they are taken as serious as they should be. And
0: on 2nd of November, 2022, the final peace deal is signed. What do you remember? from that day? Did you allow yourself to feel a little amount of pride at having contributed to that moment?
1: Because until it was signed, we didn't know it was going to be signed. There was not even a moment to move from the tension to celebration. It was more just relief (laughs) because just when we were all gathered in the hall, when we had proofread the agreement and so on, government delegation asked for a break and they went for a long time. And you can imagine everybody is sitting there, pens and everything. And we were just relieved when they moved back into the house and they say, yes, we're going to sign because, I mean, we didn't know if they had gone back to revise certain aspects of the talk, they will come back and reject certain aspects of the document. So it was uh, it was tense. That sounds
0: like with everything so uncertain, it must have been an incredible moment when it actually happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you, you kind of think, what did just happen? Did this really happen? So it's really, really big relief.
0: And after the agreement was signed, you went to Tigray, met people on the crowd. Yes. Take me to that moment when you went from the negotiating mm-hmm. table to meet those who'd been affected by mm-hmm. the war.
1: Honestly, I think for me that was the the moment. Because I had been to Tigray before and I knew that uh, there was a lot of pain and isolation. You had people who are IDPs who were living in schools for a long time. You had people who had no access to hospitals. People were afraid to walk in the streets in case they got hit by a shooter in the streets and to suddenly go there and just see people mingling walking around doing their everyday work was truly something special but of course i have to say we have not implemented all aspects of the agreement even now and that for me now is a concern as well.
0: And I want to ask you about some of those implementation challenges, but before that, when you arrived there and you were meeting those people who had survived the war, um, were there any personal encounters with particular individuals, perhaps women, perhaps men, that gave you some hope or confidence or perhaps sense of responsibility towards these people to fulfil the agreement's promise?
1: Because the isolation that the people experienced happened also during the time of the pandemic. They were afraid of the health consequences on one hand, and they were afraid of being killed. So it just felt like their world just shrunk. I remember talking to to one woman who told me that she never thought she could eat fresh fruits and vegetables again because the idea of just going to the market and picking up what you need and bringing it home, you're always getting something that somebody has given to you and by the time you get the produce from you, it's already old. Women were worried about banking, feeling that uh, they have to sit and wait for humanitarian support, but they had money in the bank which they could not access. She says, I mean, I didn't even know if we would ever get to go to the bank and get our own money. Could this be that I've lost everything that I've worked for and saved?
0: It's very clear from the way you talk that you feel passionately about it and that almost a sense of responsibility Mm. towards those people and the hope that this agreement will be fulfilled. You said that the implementation faces some challenges. Can you talk me through what some of those challenges are?
1: Well, the withdrawal of the foreign forces, that is something that I think the international community has to call for because that needs to be completed. We need to make sure that young people are back to school. We need to make sure that young people who were fighting on the side of the TPLF in particular are also reintegrated, are also supported because if we are not giving them a meaningful life there's a risk that they will want to go back and fight. We have now the interim government that is in place it is important that interim government makes a difference, but it is also important that it is not there for a long time. We move to a phase where you then have the permanent regional government that people will vote for. I'd like to
0: ask now about your role as Executive Director mm. of UN Women from 2013 to 2021. One of your many achievements was to launch the He for She initiative. A global effort to engage men and boys in removing the social and cultural barriers that prevent women and girls from achieving their potential. That must have involved a global discussion between men and women at every level. How did UN Women facilitate that conversation?
1: The first thing was that we had to agree as UN Women that this was a good thing to do because as you know, feminists of my generation didn't work with men. So it was quite a move to start by saying to my team these guys are responsible for this nonsense we're dealing with (laughs) and you cannot put everything on women you need to bring the men for them to play a role so that they can see what their role is and the difference that they could make and of course i was concerned that we don't want this to be a a discussion just at a lower level, you actually want the men with authority and power to buy into this. So heads of states are critical, CEOs of companies are critical, rectors of universities are critical, because those are the people who can set the tone. So
0: let's talk about some of those men in power, Mm. because you were having very high level meetings, Mm. I'm sure with heads of state, ministers all across the world, perhaps sometimes from conservative societies where there might Mm. be resistance Mm. to some Mm. of these ideas. Talk me through some of those negotiations that you did.
1: You know, we tried to start with the men that were agreeable so that uh, we can create a president and role models. Prime Minister Trudeau was one of our successful he for she, if I may say so. Prime Minister Abe in China was one, and in South Africa, President Ramaphosa was um, was one, and then CEOs of companies like Paul Polman in Unilever, a personality was articulated that uh, could push and that could show what is happening in their own backyard, what is happening in your country, what is happening in your company, so that it becomes a, a stepping stone for the other people. So. It was not easy for people to say no. Especially if you are a leader, you don't want to stand up in front of people and say you you don't care for gender equality. Uh, But when it comes into really implementing, that's where you may find that there is a problem. So yeah, we had these men who came, who were pushing, who created... a a move in their own countries, but also forced other younger men to think about their place in the struggle for gender equality. You know, there's been progress, but there's still so much that still needs to be done. At that
0: time, you were engaging an incredible range of people, heads of state, heads of major companies. I like to ask about... And
1: grassroots little boys yes. as well. Yeah really, at, <laughs> yeah, really at
0: all levels. And I want to ask about a specific case in South Sudan. Mm. What was happening in the country at that time and, and what role did you play?
1: In South Sudan, it's obviously like in Ethiopia, it is, as it has been, trying to make sure that uh, you save lives because the pain, and the suffering in South Sudan has been there for a long time. And we engaged at the level of government, but also a lot with the women of South Sudan, strengthening them so that uh, you could really give them the resilience that they need to stand up for their rights. We were also trying to get the women of, of South Sudan from both sides to talk together because in many cases, the women would say to us, we don't even know who is fighting who and why. And we are just the people who have to live with all this inconvenience of having to run away from our houses, protecting our children and having no food, etc. And when we have to ask ourselves, I don't hate those people. Why am I fighting with them? So we brought the women together and trying to see if the women can influence those that are in the forefront of the fight to really ceasefire. And there was a time when it seemed like that was something that could be done, but we didn't really get to a happy point, unfortunately.
0: You mentioned there was no happy ending, but was there any particular moment where you felt like the UN helped to move things forward just a little?
1: It was hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It, it really was hard. I think what the UN has succeeded to do in South Sudan was just to help it not to be much worse. Trying to get a peace that holds, it still is very difficult. But it's also important that the UN is still there, has not given up, because, I mean, we can't give up anyway.
0: Moving from South Sudan to Sudan,
1: mm.
0: Many of the pro-democracy demonstrations against the regime of President Omar al-Bashir were led by young people and women. And that popular revolution managed to oust the president and a civilian government was brought in. Do you think the agreements that were subsequently forged in Sudan betrayed those women?
1: Yes, I think it did not respect the contribution that women made, the clear demands that women made. and. I also think that the situation that we're in now has made it even much more complicated and much more difficult for women. I think that ideally, right from the word go, we should have moved to a proper civilian government, which has both men and women participating at the most strategic level. That was not reached. And then uh, a whole lot of males from all sides got to the table and dominated the process and look at where we are now.
0: And do you have some positive uh, sense of how inclusion can work from other peace processes? I know you've engaged in Colombia, for example. Mm. What did you take from that process?
1: Well, one thing about Colombia which helped a lot, and that was after so many years that women especially had been calling for their adequate representation. By the time the agreement was signed, it had reached a point where on both parties they had bought into the representation of women because women worked very hard. I think it's important for women on the opposite ends to work together, to speak with one voice because in Colombia that was one of the distinct interventions by women, that the, the women from government and from FARC could have their own caucus and discuss what was needed and then try and inject it in the talks.
0: You mentioned earlier in our conversation Nelson Mandela. Mm. If he were alive today looking at what's going on in Africa and some of those conflicts which haven't been resolved, What do you think his advice might be?
1: Well, I think he would be disappointed, that's for sure. But not discouraged because, you know, there is no option to do nothing. It's forward ever, backward never. You have to keep on trying and to keep on encouraging people to move forward. And that is why We do need to make younger people to think about where Nelson Mandela was when he went to prison. You would never have thought that he had a chance of coming out and becoming a president. So maybe, yes, perseverance, it did work for him. And this is just another generation with a different sets of challenges. But the same spirit is still very relevant and needed.
0: Well, on that inspirational note, there we must end. Dr. Fumzile Mlamo thank you so much for being my guest in The Mediator Studio. Thank you. And there we end this edition of The Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. So if you have views on anything you've heard, please get in touch via the listener survey in the show notes on our website. Or do drop me a message on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the producer is Chris Gunness. Research for this episode was done by Noemi Blomer. Big thanks also to Lee Buidong for her support. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, from Oslo, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thanks for listening.